is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Flower gardens grow flowers. Vegetable gardens grow vegetables. Herb gardens grow herbs. Do butterfly gardens grow butterflies? Yes, they do. Today we're joined by Matthew Shepard of the Xerxes Society, a national nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon, which protects wildlife through the conservation of invertebrates and their habitat. For over 40 years, the society has been at the forefront of invertebrate protection worldwide, harnessing the knowledge of scientists and the enthusiasm of citizens to implement conservation programs. Matthew is currently the communications director for the society and has directed the society's pollinator program and worked on endangered species projects. He has been wildlife gardening for decades. Welcome, Matthew. Well, thank you so much. So talk about early influences that brought you to this work. Um, well, I mean, I, uh, I'm i British, and so my, my gardening background is from England, and I actually learned gardening at my mother's side. Um, I admit to start with I didn't really enjoy it that much because <laughs> as she gardened, she would leave heaps of weeds and clippings around, and it was my job to pick them all up and put them in the compost bin. Um, and so, you know, as I say, it started basically as a source of pocket money for me. And then the longer I spent out there, the more I saw what was happening and uh, began to appreciate the plants and enjoyed being outside and eventually began to notice that there were insects, particularly butterflies. And after a while, I began to un- realize there were different butterflies. And, you know, as, as they say, you know, one, one, one little um, bit of interest drew me in, and it just became a bigger and bigger thing that has been something that's followed me throughout my life, wherever I've lived. And so what brought you to the work you do with the Xerxes Society? Well, I started working in conservation um, when I left college. And again, that was in Britain. And so my my early career was was in um, England, working um, working on farms and woodlands and grasslands, managing those kind of areas for wildlife. And then I actually went to Kenya for a couple of years with an organization called Voluntary Service Overseas, which is the British equivalent of the Peace Corps. Um, And while I was in Kenya, I met a very cute young Peace Corps volunteer, and I ended up following her back to Oregon. Um, And that's what got me here. And then when I arrived here, I was looking for work. And did a few job interviews, and then someone said, oh, you should go talk to Melody, who runs the Xerxes Society. I think, I think she'd be a really great person who could help you network. And I went and had coffee with her, and we just clicked, and we discovered we had things that they were working on, on um, pollinator conservation, and they had another project where they were trying to connect up with, actually with a, um, a butterfly conservation group in Kenya that happened to be in the village next to where I was living, and I knew the people who were running that project. Um, and that was way back in end of last century in uh, 1999 now. When I started, there were four people working for the society, um, and now we've got 40, just about to take on a couple of more people as well. So we've grown so much. How did the organization come by the name Xerxes Society? The Xerxes Blue Butterfly a small blue butterfly that lived on the San Francisco Peninsula, lived in the coastal dune systems there where it um, laid its eggs on the deerweed. 
And then that butterfly actually went extinct, and it was last seen flying in 1943, mm. um, right on a site that became a, a military munitions dump in what is now the Golden Gate Recreation Area. And that was the end of that butterfly. Basically, the city spread. Um, houses were built across the dunes, and its habitat was fragmented. Um, but this is, the Xerxes Society uh, was thought up by Robert Michael Pyle, a lepidopterist, a writer. Um, he was in, actually in England back in 1971 on a, um, on a scholarship, and he went to listen to a lecture one evening about the large blue butterfly, which in England at the time was just about to go extinct. And people were just, you know, were worrying about these things, and um, after that, Bob decided that we really needed a conservation group focused on butterflies, and he had the idea of calling it the Xerxes Society after the Xerxes Blue. Yeah. Um, and he then you know, got, it, got it running, and it was a volunteer organization with a few hundred members for quite a while. And after about a decade, they decided that they really needed to take on professional staff our interest expanded purely from butterflies as well on to take on any kind of invertebrate, anything from freshwater mussels and obscure slugs and snails all the way through to the, the things that people get all excited about, flies <laughs> and bumblebees. Now, define invertebrate first. Oh, sure. Sorry. Um, an invertebrate is any animal that does not have a backbone. So, I mean, if you've got an internal skeleton like people or like cats and dogs or um, wolves and bears and birds, eagles, salmon, fish, etc., etc. Those are all called vertebrates because they have the backbone. Um, and we work on everything else, which happens to be the huge majority of the animal kingdom. You have a new book. The Society has a new book entitled Gardening for Butterflies. I was really happy to read it and um, learned quite a few things from it, but was very happy that it didn't just include butterflies, but also covered the moths. So butterflies get people excited. And there are some butterflies like the monarch butterfly that have a loyal following. Um, but once you start looking at trying to provide what you need to support butterflies in your garden, you really can't ignore the moths. Um, moths make up eight or ten times as many different species, and there are approximately 800 species of butterflies in North America, and, you know, many, I mean, ten or twelve times as many species of moths. Um, some of them are, are large and colorful and out in the daytime, and some of them are small and brown and obscure and only fly around at night, but they are, they are just as important, potentially more important than butterflies in our ecology. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're speaking with Matthew Shepard of the National Xerxes Society about the ecological importance of our butterflies and moths and how we as gardeners can help to support them. They are way more important than just pretty. Talk about those levels of ecological importance. Yeah, I mean, but the, we don't want to ignore the pretty because the no. pretty is one thing that makes people love them. Mm. And in a way... Um, it, it's a people thing, but it also has an ecological impact because then people want to protect them. Yes. Um, whereas so many other insects people just look upon as a pest. Um, and of course, some butterflies are pests in the wrong place. Um, and so 
so we don't want to ignore that as well. But the, the, the real, in a way, the real ecological importance of butterflies are when they're caterpillars because they eat plants. And I know from a garden perspective, some people don't like that. Um, but this, the, the eating of plants means that the plants get converted to a food that other animals can also use. And so, for example, something in excess of 90% of songbirds eat caterpillars or other insects um, to feed their young. That's what they grow on. It's this fantastic little... Um, it's, it's, if people talk about power food these days, a superfood, it's like caterpillars are like a superfood for birds. Um, you know, and so there are so many other animals that will prey upon caterpillars from um, wasps and flies and, I mean, all sorts of other levels of, of wildlife are dining on caterpillars. And, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever been able to work out just how many caterpillars there are, but there are billions of these, cat, these little critters out there, and so many of them get eaten, um, which seems like a rather sad, vicious situation, but it's, it's wildlife, it's nature. And so these, these caterpillars are just this profoundly important food source for some, so many other animals. There's a fabulous picture in the book of, um, I think it's a robin, um, and its mouth is just full of caterpillars. And as a gardener, right, we're very aware of how many caterpillars are in our garden, and Mm. they are often seen as just pests uh, as they're eating your rosebuds or, you know, devouring the leaves on something. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but... Coming back to sort of my introduction to the the program today, it is this really fabulous process that unlike, you know, gardening for bees or or gardening for songbirds per se, um, you can actually figure out which plants butterflies and moths need for their larval stage, that Mm -hmm. caterpillar stage. And you can see the whole entire process unfold. You can grow butterflies and moths yeah. in your garden. And um, I am a I work in the Gateway Science Museum and Natural History Museum here in Chico, and I am the curator of the native plant pollinator garden there. And we have now, for three years running, had multiple flights of uh, both our local pipevine swallowtail butterfly mm-hmm. and the monarchs, um, and to watch the adults lay their eggs, to be able to photograph the eggs, to see the eggs hatch, to see the caterpillars come out and then get fat. I mean, it is, it's miraculous and the visitors love it. And to put that whole circle together um, for anyone makes you a lot more admiring of caterpillars. Yeah. And also, I mean, if you start gardening for butterflies, then you're beginning to garden at the base of your garden ecosystem. Um, I know when we talk about habitats, people tend to think of habitat as being, you know, that meadow, that prairie, that chaparral up on the hillside. But a garden is a habitat. And whatever you do to that garden, whether it's um, full of brightly colored bedding plants and close mown grass, it's it's still habitat for something. Um, And so when you're gardening for butterflies, we're beginning to focus on making that habitat nice and and provide all that you need for the bottom layer of of the wildlife, the bottom of that pyramid. And then by doing that, you're providing so much for everything else, whether it's feeding the birds that come in um, or, you know, providing the the plant structure that 
creates nesting sites for other animals. Um, and so it really does work down at the foundation layer and just do excellent things for a garden overall. And the the reverse is also true. We as gardeners can do excellent things for uh, these these creatures. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the exciting things is that you, you hear a story about the Xerxes blue or, you know, our, our monarchs struggling and terrible population loss. And um, but to un- read and learn more and understand and see on the ground in a garden um, that you can do your part to help is so powerful. Yeah, no, because your, your garden is part of that bigger landscape. And when, I mean, particularly something like the monarch butterfly, which is traveling potentially hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles if it's um, migrating, if it's one of the individuals migrating all the way from Canada down to Mexico, you know, it can only do that. And, and the returning monarchs can only breed and expand further north and outwards from their overwintering sites if the plants are in the landscape for them. And so what you're doing in your garden, it might seem like a small thing, but it's one more good piece of um, land within the broader landscape. So it really is um, a significant contribution that gardeners can make to these wider conservation issues. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking with Matthew Shepard of the Xerces Society, a national nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon. We've begun talking about the nature of butterflies and moths and some of the challenges their populations are facing. After the break, we'll be back to learn more about what we can do as gardeners to attract and nurture them. Stay with us. Welcome back. Before the break, we began our conversation with Matthew Shepard of the Xerces Society based in Portland, Oregon. The bad news is that butterflies and moths are under a lot of pressure from habitat degradation, fragmentation, and loss. The good news is that home gardens can help provide critically needed habitat, and gardeners can make a difference in how and what they plant. Welcome back. So we've started to talk about this idea of, of gardening and gardening for butterflies and growing butterflies and the impact. And um, talk a little bit about the challenges that just these creatures, I mean, I, I think it's all creatures, but these creatures specifically are facing in terms of um, their life cycles. Yeah, I mean, with, with any wildlife, you need to provide food for adults and food for the young and somewhere for them to lay their eggs. And so for butterflies, it's exactly the same. 
Um, and with, with, with butterflies, we know that they lay their eggs on particular plants because often the, the caterpillars are very choosy about what, what they can eat. Um, and so for, for butterflies, I mean, often the, the lack of appropriate um, caterpillar host plants, as we call them, the, the plants that the caterpillars eat, um, it's the lack of those that are it, it's sometimes a, a bigger limitation on populations than um, the, the pretty flowers that provide the nectar for the adults. So, for instance, um, very specifically, this is borne out in the story of the monarch. The mm-hmm. monarch larval stage only eats plants from the Asclepius or milkweed family. Mm-hmm. And without those plants, the, the caterpillars cannot grow, mature, metamorph into the butterflies we see. That's right. And that is one of the fabulous things about the book, by the way, is that, um, you know, there's a, a very in-depth and, and meaningful introduction and uh, setup for the book. And then there, is, there are profiles of many of our common uh, butterfly and moth species across the country. And it lists for each one the larval food that they need so that mm-hmm. you can go out and say, I'm going to plant the larval food for all of these butterflies that live in my area. And you will be growing butterflies. Yeah, no, and that's one thing when we um, started preparing this book, we knew that this was important information that wasn't often covered everywhere. I mean, I think that um, anybody who's writing about butterfly gardening now recognizes the importance of, of the host plants, but often this information is not so easily available. And so the, in a way, the core of the book, there's a section called um, Butterfly Plants of North America, I think the chapter's called. And the point behind that, that when we set out to do this, say, hey, you know, here are these just these fantastic plants, and some of them are great nectar plants, some of them are um, primarily caterpillar host plants, and some of them do both of that. But we also, in thinking about a butterfly garden, need to think broader than just flowers. Mm. And so the, the host plants include grasses, because there are many the small brown butterflies, primarily brown butterflies, called skippers, and many of those eat grasses. And so you can put in as many um, milkweeds <laughs> as you like, or um, buckwheat, which is another great um, host plant for, particularly for blue butterflies and hair streaks. But you know, if you don't have grasses, you're missing this whole family of butterflies that would have nothing to feed on. Um, and you can also look up above because, you know, oak trees, for example, are um, possibly one of the greatest single species of plants for insects. And there are literally hundreds of different insects that will have part of their life cycle on an oak tree. It, that, that's interesting that you mentioned that. I, I took a butterfly identification workshop with an entomologist here at CSU Chico, Don Miller, and we went on a field trip. And one of the things that was really um, educational for me was that he had us always looking up into the canopy, not at the flowers. He said, that is where they rest. That is where they will spend quite a bit of their time, um, you know, flying and and sort of going around until they go down to nectar on one of the flowers. And I had never, that I did not know that prior to this class. Yeah, no, I mean, so I mean, in a way, if you want to think of what might be an ideal butterfly habitat, um, if you think of, um, uh, in an open area with, pretty flowers on the ground and a, a tree, an open tree canopy above, something that you might call like a savanna 
type of, um, of habitat. Um, you know, that might be the ideal butterfly habitat because it has the warmth, it has the nectar, it has the trees that provide all the, the entire cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can look in your garden, whatever size your garden is, and you can look to see, well, how much of that can I provide in my garden? Um, and if you've got a small garden, then you probably don't have room for an oak tree because the oak tree might end up bigger than your garden. Um, but maybe there's a small shrub that you can you could grow in them. Cyanophis, the, the um, California lilac or buckbrush. Uh, maybe there's room for a, a, a small willow tree. Talk a little bit about the impact of insecticides. When I learned about gardening, uh, insecticides really weren't such an issue because people just weren't using as many. And in particular, there's a, a, a relatively new class of insecticides called neonicotinoids, or neonics for short. And these are systemic insecticides, i.e. once they're applied to a plant, the plant actually takes these up into its own tissues. And from a pest perspective, a pest control perspective, that's fantastic because you apply them to a plant because you want to stop that plant being chewed on or sucked on. Um, And so you, you can do that, but it now means that instead of there just being a a layer of um, an insecticide on the surface of a plant. That entire plant is now toxic. And it's toxic. We, we talked about this in an earlier program as well yeah. with Dr. Gordon Frankie out of UC Berkeley and, and bee gardening. And um, I think for me as a home gardener, the scariest part is that you often don't even know that that insecticide is there. So you're, you're in your garden trying to do the right thing, and you have purchased a plant from a nursery that has used or they purchased a start from a grower that used a neonicotinoid, and you don't even know you've just put this in your garden. I mean, it, it is, that is terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, because the, the, the neonicotinoids have introduced this thing whereby the impact is now displaced, separated from the point of application, both in time and in geography. And as you say, if it was applied when the, the plant was being grown, you know, that could have been several hundred miles away from you and several weeks before. And now this plant's growing and, and you've moved it into your garden. And so the, there, there have been several campaigns. Um, Xerces Society has done it, and also some of the other organizations like the like Friends of the Earth have been involved. And now Home Depot um, and Lowe's, two of the major um, hardware stores that have big garden centers associated with them, have now said, okay, we're going to stop selling plants that have been treated with these these particular group of insecticides. And so that's now going to make it easier for gardeners. But in in the meantime, you should ask Ask. to the people and say, please, can you tell me what this plant has been treated with? Can you tell me, has this plant been treated with a neonicotinoid? And the problem is often in these places, the retail staff won't know. But so, the importance of asking the question so that the, the people who buy and, and sell to us know that we care is just so critical. Yeah, exactly. And so then you ask these questions and that raises the issue. And it, it, it is beginning to result in change. I mean, like I say, um, Lowe's and Home Depot have now made a, um, a commitment to phase out these products. From and I think they're labeling until then. So they have, but the labeling has um, 
the labeling's funny, and what it says is this plant is protected from problematic aphids, whitefly, beetles, mealybugs, and other unwanted pests by neonicotinoids, mm-hmm. which are approved by the EPA. Um, which, but that makes neonics seem like a very nice thing to have around, very helpful. Yeah. When but... in fact it's, it's very carefully worded by somebody yes. to um, dodge the basic issue, and you know, unless you know the subject well enough and feel confident to look at it and go, well, no, that's not quite right. In your own home garden, mm-hmm. if you were to recommend, four, you know, four or five groups of good plants for butterfly gardening, we, we, mm-hmm. you've mentioned the importance of a canopy uh, and either, you know, a big canopy or even a small one for, for shelter and warmth. And you talked about the grasses. In the group of flowering plants that are great supporters for these pollinators and food source creatures, butterflies and moths, what would you recommend? Um, I would have milkweed. Mm-hmm. Even if you're in, I mean, where I live, we almost never get monarch butterflies themselves come through. But it's not, milkweed is a beautiful plant. It's a fantastic source of nectar. And it also supports other butterflies. And depending on where you are, you, know, you may or may not get queens. You, there are a few moths as well that will use it as a, as a caterpillar host plant. But it's just generally a fantastic plant. Um, I would also have uh, lupins. Um, they are beautiful in their own right. Um, they also a great bumblebee plant, if you like bumblebees, and they are host plants for a number of um, blue butterflies and um, some sulfurs. And then another plant that is a really great one to have around is buckwheat, mm-hmm. and that's the native buckwheat. Um, and we have maybe, oh, we have a... A whole handful of native buckwheats in California, yeah. specifically. Yeah, no, yeah. They're, they're great little plants, and they're they're drought tolerant, which is nice. And again, they're they're both a good source of nectar and also a, 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 um, a host plant for several different butterflies. So mm-hmm. they're nice to have around. And then another thing to think about is you want to try and have um, nectar for your um, adult butterflies from as early as you can in the year to late in the year because either the butterflies are out still and, um, and still feeding or if it's a, a monarch, for example, trying to get back to the overwintering site, which in um, California is along the, the coastline, um, they're, they're still going to need the nectar to fuel themselves. And so some of the late flowering plants such as aster and goldenrod. Um, and I would also put out a boost for thistles I'm sure if you ever go out and about and you find a patch of thistles, you've probably seen that they have a lot of butterflies and other insects on them. So wherever you can have a thistle, have one. Okay. That seems like a a good start. Matthew Shepard, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the mission and knowledge of the Xerces Society. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Matthew Shepard is working with the Xerces Society, a national nonprofit organization based in Portland, Oregon, which protects wildlife through the conservation of invertebrates and their habitat. The Society has authored a new book entitled Gardening for Butterflies, which is available now. Next week, the conversations continue when we're joined by Jessica Lundberg, third-generation member of the Lundberg Family Farms, a major player in the world of big agriculture in the North Central Valley.
With organic and naturally grown rice and rice products shipped around the world, Lundberg Family Farms has a reputation for being conscientious environmental stewards, advocates for sustainable and ethical growing, and adamantly anti-GMO. She and I explore the many similarities between sustainable agriculture of any size and the mindful home garden. Join us again next Thursday to hear more. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. Audio archives and podcasts for today's program can be found at MyNSPR.org. More information, including many photos, are available at JewelGarden.com. Join us daily at Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.